0: Welcome to CTL Connection's Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at CTLConnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Co-Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short bites partner, CloudZero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? CloudZero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash Connection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctoconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Kimberly Weefling. Kimberly is the founder of Weefling Consulting and the co-founder of Silicon Valley Alliances. Kimberly, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Delighted, Peter. Always a delight. Likewise. So I I love the the title of this this topic, which is Overcoming the Pandemic of Disengaged Employees and Dysfunctional Workplaces. Uh, What first made you interested in this topic?
1: Well, I started my career at Hewlett-Packard, and I worked there for 10 long years and seven different jobs. And as you might remember, last century, Hewlett-Packard had a reputation for being one of the best places in the world to work, I was miserable. (laughs) I hated it. I actually quit twice. I quit once after seven years. They hired me back six months later, and I quit again after another two years. So I was fascinated that company culture that was supposedly the best was truly a miserable place I would get physically ill on Sunday evenings knowing I had to go to work the next day.
0: So for you personally, what was it that made you disengaged or or unhappy working in that environment?
1: Well, for one of the things was that my style is very intense, very emotional, very passionate. And back in that day, 80% or more of Hewlett Packard employees were Myers-Briggs type ISTJ, which is a typical engineering type. I love my ISTJ friends. They're very important to our world. I am an ENFP with low flexibility. And Peter, there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion these days. The one diversity that is not protected by law is style diversity. So they thought, I wasn't just different. I was wrong.
0: (laughs) So I, I'd love to think. That. I know it's a little bit of a, a side, uh, but I was talking. Uh, I was giving a presentation to the Denver CTO Club the other day about uh, remote and hybrid work, and one of the things that came up was this idea of using, for example, Myers Briggs to to bring a diversity of, of styles and approaches and to balance a team. What, what are your thoughts about that? And have you ever engaged with a company that that's actually done that?
1: Well, these days, rather than Myers Briggs. I use Enneagram, and yes, I have done Enneagram analysis of teams in certain companies. And what we have found is a lack of style diversity based on the nine strategies of the Enneagram. For example, I was working with a Silicon Valley financial analysis firm, and they do all kinds of investments and things like that. And they had so many people with the one perfectionist strategy and the sixth risk-averse strategy. And then they had nobody with the other strategies for innovation, creativity. Same thing with a really huge global car company I worked with. They claimed to want to be really innovative and create breakthrough car designs, but they hired all these people who love this risk-averse strategy. And it's really (laughs) hard to be innovative and creative when you're not allowed to take risks or make mistakes because you're a perfectionist, or you're always looking for what's going wrong.
0: Now, it's it's really interesting, because I think that's a very natural human instinct to hire people like us. And apart from anything else, we, whoever we are, are probably right, or we think we are. So of course, we want people who are right, just like us. Uh, what do you think is the right level of like specifically, you know, Enneagram, my Briggs, like psychological diversity. And, and none of this is to denigrate or, or not to focus on all the other kinds of diversity. Uh, those are super important. That's just sure. another podcast. We've got plenty of those. Um, but in terms of that, is it appropriate to actually sometimes intentionally say, actually, I want everyone to be risk adverse because we are, you know, we're going to lose a billion dollars if somebody makes a mistake or like how, what is the right composition of a given team, depending upon the constraints and the goals of the business.
1: You know, I think it does depend on where you are on the product life cycle. In the early stages of idea, service or product development, you need tons of diversity. It's been proven that diverse teams create better results, more innovation, more creativity. And then of course, there's people who are better at the early phases of a product life cycle. And as you go through to the execution phase into the sustaining phase, you want a different kind of person. You want somebody different looking after the day-to-day sustainability, avoiding downtime or other risks that you really can't bear as a company. So one of the things I tell people is, hey, I am a fish. If you want to climb a tree, get a squirrel. Now, if you put a fish in charge of climbing <laughs> trees, that's bad. That's on you. And we need to let people impedance match to the jobs that they are gifted for and that they are motivated to do. So I think that's one of the biggest responsibilities of a leader is to make sure they have the right kind of team at the right phases of the whole
0: business life cycle. That's wonderful. So apologies for for driving us down that that diversion, although a fascinating one though it is. So you were at Hewlett-Packard and one of the challenges was you just didn't fit in from like a psychological profile. But more broadly, why do you see that there is, you know, why are we talking about a a pandemic of disengaged employees? And also maybe to provide context, is this just post-COVID or has this been going on for a while? Oh, Peter, this
1: is going on so long that I used to call it the epidemic But I changed the name to the pandemic once COVID hit. Um, First of all, when I was at Hewlett Packard, I didn't think it was my fault. I thought it was the others. You know, often we think people who are different from us are wrong. Now I've learned over the years that different is not deficient. Different is just different. And when these people drive me crazy, it's because they have a different style of getting things done. And I call them the differently gifted. Okay, they do drive each other crazy, of course, and you need them. I wasn't professionally and personally mature enough to realize how I was contributing to these challenges. I had studied physics for seven years, Peter. I had a master's in physics, a bachelor's degree in chemistry and physics, and I was working in an engineering job. What did I know about human beings? I think one of the things we need to challenge ourselves to do these days is make sure that everybody who's going to have to work with other humans knows the difference between leadership and management and can lead from any chair, and that they understand the difference between a group of people and a real team and the skills required to integrate differently gifted people into a fully functional, healthy team.
0: And and I think that's really interesting too, because you you talk about the the distinction between leadership and management, right? You know, being responsible for people report to you, tell them what to do versus leadership. You may not have formal management oversight, but you want to inspire and persuade people to to move in a particular direction. And I think one of the challenges we have, especially in, in software engineering leadership, is most of us started writing code because we liked computers a little more than humans. And then it's like, okay, you did you did such a good job of writing that code. Let's go get you to stop writing code and manage a team of humans is one problem, which is we don't necessarily provide sufficient management training for software developers who move on to a management track. But I think even deeper than that, the the thing that, that you kind of catch caught a little bit there is we certainly don't provide leadership training. So if I stay on the IC track, if I become a principal and staff engineer, I wonder how likely it is at most companies that I'm going to get regular soft skills leadership training, given that I'm still just an engineer. And yet I could fundamentally be impacting the way that uh, huge numbers of the engineers within the company feel about themselves because of my architectural decisions and the way that I engage with them in meetings.
1: Well, you've hit on some beautiful points there, Peter. Uh, First of all, last time I checked, it was over 10 years before people promoted to management roles were getting any kind of management or leadership training. So maybe that's changed lately. I hope so. And also, you called them soft skills. I say the soft stuff is the hardest. I'm trying to get people to call them human skills. Of course, my dear friends in engineering call it touchy-feely crap. And I understand (laughs) that. And I felt the same way. I didn't realize it mattered. Literally, when I was at HP, one of my colleagues on my team said, Kimberly, talking to you is like talking to a blowtorch. (laughs) If I had known that that was truly my impact on people, and I had understood that it was impacting the results negatively, maybe I would have done something to change it. But I thought all that matters was the results, you know, lines of code, hardware out the door, production capacity. I really didn't understand that. And what I also have learned since then, thanks to Stanford University Bob Sutton's book, The No Asshole Rule, one person is enough to taint the entire environment and tank productivity. So I honestly wish somebody had said to me, Kimberly, I know you care about getting things done productivity, and the
0: technical aspects of this job.
1: You can get even more done if you're not such a jerk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I resemble that comment. <laughs> a lot of my career, I was exactly the same. It's like, why? I, I just have to just get it done, like just push through. Yes. Turns out it's not the best way to, to help people to bring their whole selves to work.
1: That's right. When you have uh, the best, most engaged workplaces – still only have 70% of people coming in ready to give discretionary effort. Still 30% either not engaged or actively disengaged. You're losing so much productivity. And the average workplace in the United States, which is the best of all countries for employee engagement, is only 30%. So literally 70% of employees in the United States come to work in exchange for a paycheck. And only... A few come to work willing to do what's required above and beyond the call of duty or their paycheck because they're truly engaged. And the number one cause, number one cause of low engagement globally, is
0: the manager, direct manager. So, so let's dig into that then. Yes. Yeah. So, the manager, why, why is, why, how, why do managers cause disengagement?
1: So, uh, the, the direct manager has the most impact on your day to day happiness. And uh, when Gallup did their research over the last 30 years on employee engagement, they call it the Gallup 12, they found that employees have four basic needs. They have the basic, what's expected of me? And do I have materials and equipment to do my job? And what they found was only 40% of employees say yes to those two questions. 60% of people don't even know what's expected of them or have (sighs) materials and equipment to do their job. Seriously, Peter. Now, whose job is it to make sure you know what your job is and have materials and equipment to do your job? It's the direct manager. If you get that right, then they need management support. They need someone who cares about them. They need someone who encourages them, gives them a little bit of recognition, not just saying good job every year on your performance appraisal. And again, like we talked about the squirrels and the fish, matches them up to do what they do best. Now, if you get that right, basic needs and management support, then they want to work with a team of coworkers that is committed to quality, that has a purpose beyond profit, a mission that matters, their, their opinions count, and they actually like the people they work with. In fact, having a best friend at work is correlated with higher engagement. Finally, if you get all the way up Maslow's hierarchy, they get opportunities to learn and grow and make some kind of tangible progress. If you're running a race, it's a 100-meter race, and you're told, you're at the 50-meter line, you're doing great, you're at the 90-meter line, you're at 95, there's the finish line, you will actually put out about 40% more discretionary effort. If you're running a race to say, like, just run till I tell you to stop, hard as you can, fast <laughs> as you can, how fast are you going to run? You don't know which direction, you don't know where's the finish line, it's not motivating. But the very basic things are completely in the control of the direct manager.
0: So as, as an executive, let's say you're a director level or higher, and hopefully you've, you've internalized some of these concepts. A- any thoughts about how you start to operationalize this to make it a part of the way that your managers and, and the managers under them better engage with your team?
1: Well, 20 years ago, there was a book called Abolish Performance Appraisals Now, So first thing you do is you get rid of the traditional (laughs) performance appraisals. And many companies have done this. And I did it when I was a vice president of program management and organizational culture for a Silicon Valley startup. I got the executive team to abolish performance appraisals. In its place, we had a quarterly respectful dialogue between the manager and the people on their team to saying, hey, here's our company goals and our measures of success And here's what our team's supposed to do. What do you think? How might you contribute to this? Where does it make sense for you to contribute your skills, your talents, and any other ideas? And so that involves a lot of listening. Now, when we think about the stereotype of manager or leader, we think about someone who's leading. The best leaders listen twice as much as they talk. Two ears, one mouth. Use them in that ratio. And listening generously, it's something that I learned 25 years ago, it's been the most valuable leadership skill, is to listen, listen, listen to other people until it's physically painful and you want to dig your heart out with a rusty spoon because they have plenty of ideas of how to improve your team, your business, your organization, but they're not going to tell you unless you ask and wait and listen generously and appreciate them. How do I know this? When I go in and do my consulting, executives will say, hey, come come in and fix our people. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, fine. But when I find out that you are somehow contributing to these problems, how do you want me to tell you? Oh yeah, just tell us, Kimberly. Then I'll go and I'll interview 10, 20, 30, 50 people one by one. What's working? Hey, here's the goals your executive wants to achieve. Any ideas? What's working? We should do more. What's not working? We should change it. What's missing? We should add it. Any other ideas? If you had a magic wand, unlimited resources, if anything were possible, what would you instantly change or do? I get hundreds of ideas. And then turns out these people have not told their executives that because they didn't ask them. And when the ideas involve the executives and some changes they need to make personally or professionally, here's what happens. I go and I say, uh, yeah, I got some great feedback. Some things that the executives could do differently. Would you like to hear it? Oh, yeah. I tell them all the things about what the executives are doing, that it's actually making it harder for their people to do their job. What they could do to make it easier, help them do a better job. First question. Can you guess, Peter, the first question they ask? Who said that? Oh, my goodness, people. (laughs) So you just ask people, they've got tons of ideas and there was one um, project done at General Electric where they had these open forums where they asked all kinds of people, how can we improve our business? They got thousands of ideas and they found out that most of these ideas, the people who gave them had the power all along to implement them. They were
0: just waiting to be asked. And I mean, I was reading the uh, forward to the fifth discipline again recently, and it was interesting because it was it was talking about this exact same topic which is arguably we we have a schooling problem not not even a workplace problem which is from a kid you're taught that there is a right answer the teacher has it if you can show that you're better at getting to it than your classmates then you get the best grade and these are arguably antithetical especially if you're working in a role where you're creating the future where you're creating innovation in terms of the ways you should work
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, NASA did a, some research where they gave people a creativity quiz when they were five years old, when they were 10, when they were 15, and then when they were adults. Between the age of five and 10, creativity went down from 98% to 30%. And what happens to kids between the age of five and 10?
0: <laughs> you know, they go to school. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that. So what would be like if, if you were an engineering leader and you, you had, I think it's hard sometimes, right? Because especially if you're in maybe a venture back startup, you don't have time for this. You've got to hit the quarterly feature reports and you've got to make sure that the board's happy. And then there's a trade show coming up where you need to launch the new features. How do you start to incorporate this into the operational cadence of an engineering org?
1: So I'll tell you from my real experience. I was working at one of my three Silicon Valley startups that I worked at. And, uh, of course they all three failed, Peter. That's just playing the Silicon Valley lottery. It's exciting. But the one place where I was working, my VP of hardware engineering said to me one day, Hey, Kimberly, why don't every Friday we go over to that place across the street with all the whole people on the team and have a beer? Now, if you don't drink alcohol, that's fine. Have a cup of tea, have a glass of water. But we started going out every Friday afternoon just for an hour or so to engage and connect as human beings. Have some fun together, blow off some steam, joke around, sitting around the table, chatting. That did more for our team than any of my project meetings. I'll tell you why it's so important. The number one cause of failure in global teams is people failing to build trusting relationships. And how do you build trust? You've got to know each other. You have to get to know each other as human beings. Build relationships, build trust, create psychological safety so people can actually tell you what's going on and give you their ideas and not fear being criticized. Also, you have to create a culture where you demand people give you bad ideas, I like to frame every brainstorm by saying, hey, let's think of at least one idea that would never work, one idea that would get me fired, and one idea that would be so impossible the boss would roll his eyes and your family would worry and your friends would just say you're crazy. And that gives people permission to take risks, especially in the engineering world where it's all about figuring out how to get stuff done. I don't know how. When I have a new idea, I just have an idea. And I need to feel safe saying, hey, guys, I don't know how, but wouldn't this be cool? And there's something called science fiction prototyping now, which gives people more permission mm-hmm. to imagine crazy ideas
0: and call it prototyping. <laughs> oh, great. So tell me a little more about that. So science fiction prototyping, what's what's the, the model? So you just
1: say, hey, we have this crazy problem or we have this situation we'd like to transform. Well, let's figure out how would they they do it in Star Wars or Star Trek or how could you (laughs) jump to the future and just create it instantly? And this kind of lateral thinking where you'd start in the future with a clear, vivid hallucination, I like to call it, of what the world would look like, feel like, smell like, taste like, sound like, and it's magical because it's all science fiction stuff. And you get really clear about the outcome first without worrying about how did you create it? Funny thing about that, it tends to spark things in the engineering brain of, well, geez, I can think of some ways to do that. Now, any engineer might not be able to figure it out, but you got all these wonderful, talented human beings together working on these impossible things that are so exciting. They want to find a way, they will find a way. The best breakthroughs do not come from the sole genius bringing it to fruition. It comes from a team working together and riffing off of each other's insights.
0: I I think that's you talked about performance reviews earlier, right? And that's one of the tough things is how do you do individual performance reviews when engineering is fundamentally a team sport?
1: Oh, well, there is some great information about how to do that in a report I'll be happy to send to you.
0: Oh, I will get them. We'll put it into the show notes. Thank you so much. Right. And I guess the, the last thing I'd ask, unfortunately, we're running towards the end of time. Uh, a lot of this, you you talked about, we obviously need to create psychological safety. You want to create this kind of like deep trusting relationship where people can afford to be weird, be different, be crazy, so that you can support the divergent as well as the convergent thinking when you're trying to come up with new innovations and solutions. I guess my question is, how do you see that changing? At some point in time, we're going to come back to the office, but not all of us. We've got a, a world which is going to be hybrid first. How do you start to build that psychological? Firstly, how and when do you build that psychological trust in person? And then, how you do it? Do you do that in a way that does not disadvantage the people who maybe will never be able to make it into your office? No
1: doubt about it. It is always tough in a hybrid situation. Some of the things I've done when I have had a mixed group like that, we build a physical model of them as a human being, dress them up in their clothes and put a picture of their face on the model. Literally, we have done this in some of my workshops where for one reason or the other, people weren't able to attend in person. Or we had a hybrid environment for a presentation workshop where we had the person presenting huge on one screen the live members standing by them and another projector with the presentation. The technology is there. Let's hallucinate. Maybe we create this environment where we're all in virtual reality. Even if you're there in person, when we want to include them, we can still include them in this science fiction future. And one organization actually set up cubicles for all of their absent people. And you could sit in their cubicle and it was connected to them all day, so you could hear what they were doing in the background. So you could sit there and listen to what they were hearing, and they could sit at home and listen to what was going on in the workplace. There's lots of technology that we can use, Peter. I think a couple of years from now, it might be hard to distinguish who is actually working from home and who's working in the workplace. I'm open to the possibility. Maybe 14 years ago, I worked with a big Japanese automobile company. And they had a team in the U.S. and a team in Japan who needed to meet together. They had a special room where they had a half of a conference room table in Japan. Then there was a big screen and the other half of the conference room table was in the U.S. And they could literally sit around the table together. There are ways, there's technology. I would say, Peter, this is not a problem. This is an expense waiting to be approved. (laughs)
0: Kimberly thank you so much for sharing your wisdom that was great my pleasure